Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this, this morning we're focusing in on verses 10, 11, and 12. But of course, as we have been uh, reading uh, the whole section, just so we have the context this morning, we'll start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are the words of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Although the world today is in so much darkness, we are so blessed because we have the light of your word. We have the light of your word that, that gives life. Lord, we thank you for uh, speaking to our hearts today. Lord, for, for, for calling us here, for bringing us here to worship you, to be in your presence, to be in and uh, amongst your people today. Lord, help us as we look at this great truth today of being persecuted and being reviled for your sake, Lord, that we would see this not as a burden to bear, but as something to embrace, as that is what your word teaches us to do. We thank you for helping us uh, through our time in your word to, today to live more faithfully as your people. That is our heart's desire to please you, to honor you, to glorify you. Lord, that you would be exalted in our lives and in our families. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, over the last two months, we've been studying the Beatitudes, this opening section. And as you'll recall, I began this series with three main ideas, and, and we've been looking at them and reiterating them every week. The first is that this section, this opening section on the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, these blessings, what Jesus is describing here, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, etc., etc., that he's not just describing anyone, but a particular type of person. Here Jesus is laying out for us the born-again person, those who have put their faith in Christ and by the Spirit of God have passed from death unto life. And how many of you would say here this morning that that is you today? You are among those who that is describing, someone who has put their faith in Christ, the, the redeemed, the born again, the, the new creation. And Jesus here, as he is a king of kings and Lord of lords, Matthew's opened his gospel by, by showing us that in the first four chapters. He is now laying out for us in his Sermon on the Mount what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom. But before he starts talking about what it looks like to live as a citizen, he first wants to describe what that kingdom citizen looks like. And so these attributes are for all Christians. The, the, this, that's the second idea that I've laid out for us is that these are not just the superstar Christians, the the, the ones that are somehow on some higher plane of spirituality, 
you know, those pastors and missionaries and the, the people that we might be tempted to put on a pedestal, that really the, the, the kingdom of God is, is such that God calls all of his people to be like this. Not, all, not that we're all superstar Christians, that there are no superstar Christians. There was only one, his name was Jesus. And then there's the rest of us. And he calls us, all of us, and so these attributes, poor in spirit, mourn, the meek, hungering, thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted, we, this is for all of us, not just a select group of us. And so you can't sit there and say, well, that's for the pastors, that's for the elders. No, this is for you. This is for all of us. And then the third idea was that all of these attributes are for all of us, not just some of them. So we can't say, well, this person will be the peacemaker and I will be the merciful and this person over here is a meek because their personality uh, it, you know, tends that way. That no, what he's talking about is not our natural disposition, but our supernatural disposition. The character of Christ that is produced in us by the Spirit of God. And so that all of these are for all of us. And so we should be actively seeking if there are any of these that do not describe us to seek to see them developed in our life as we walk with the Lord. And these need to be stressed again, these three ideas need to be stressed again as we move into looking at our passage today, this final beatitude. Let's look at it again in verse 10. Blessed are, the, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is the typical uh, formula that all of these have followed. Blessed, and then he describes, and then he uh, follows with what that blessing is. But on this point, and I just want to point this out to you as an initial observation, Jesus here expounds on this. He, he breaks the mold for this final one. He, he gives uh, more commentary on it. And by doing so, adding to it, he highlights it for us as if it's bolded or underlined in our text. Every single one of these stands alone as just a simple formula, blessing and uh, result and, and the character that goes there. But here he adds to it. And so we see verse 11 and 12 where he expounds upon it, underlining it for it, highlighting this for us. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So first we have to see that Jesus, of all the eight beatitudes that we see, he's, he's doing something different here to draw our attention more closely to this one in particular. Notice also that the idea for, for most of us, all of us, is that blessedness and persecution don't go in the same category, right? We, we wouldn't think that you would follow up, blessed are the persecuted. But here we see that Jesus slams these two ideas together so that they are absolutely inseparable. That those who are persecuted for Christ are blessed, are blessed. And then here he reiterates the, the first blessing with that he pronounced on those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same applies here because the temptation would be in our flesh if we were undergoing some persecution, especially if we lived under the teaching that is so prevalent today in Western culture, Christianity, that we are to just live a life that is blessed, right? 
And then how is that blessing defined so often? Isn't it defined as peace, tranquility, material prosperity, not persecution in our mind, right? And so the temptation would be if, if we are undergoing hardship, persecution for the sake of Christ, we might, we might be tempted to think, am I part of the kingdom of God? Is there some defect in my Christian walk? Is there some defect in my Christianity? What have I done wrong? Do I not have enough faith? Because so often in our culture, it's, you know, God is portrayed like a genie in the bottle. You go to him to get what you want, whatever you want in life, and he's the one who'll give it to you if you'll just, get, if you'll just follow him. And often that's translated as, as wealth and prosperity. And, and there's nothing, again, th- th- again, there's nothing inherently evil in wealth and prosperity unless it's an idol in your life. Amen. Unless you're using God to get what you really want. Right? That's when it's an idol. And so the temptation, I think, in our culture would be if we were experiencing hardship and persecution to think, am I a part of the kingdom of God? Am am, am I a part of God's family? What have I done wrong? But Jesus says, no. If If you're experiencing persecution, it's a sign that you're a part of the kingdom of heaven. The other thing I think, just initial observation here, that might seem odd to us is that Jesus moves from, in verse 9, the, the, the final beatitude before this one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become called sons of God. He, go, he goes uh, immediately from being a peacemaker to being persecuted. We might say, well, how does that work? If you're a peacemaker, won't everything just be nice all the time in your life? And and smooth sailing if you're a peacemaker. But again, if you'll recall last Sunday when we looked at blessed are the peacemakers, what we found is that the only peace and the peace that Jesus is talking about is the peace that we experience in being in a right relationship with God. That's the only way to have true and lasting peace, amen? And so the peacemakers are those who proclaim that gospel, the gospel of peace. The gospel of reconciliation to God. The gospel that calls sinners to repentance so that we might have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But the absolute unmistakable truth is that those people who proclaim that gospel will in this world be persecuted. So these two things are not separated. They go together. And so it logically flows that Jesus moves from those who proclaim the true gospel of repentance and faith in Christ to those who are persecuted. So peacemaking is gospel preaching. And those who proclaim the gospel will face opposition and even persecution. Persecution, what is persecution? Well, persecution can be defined as physical and life-threatening opposition to the gospel. You want a good idea of persecution? Read the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. Now, there's a huge uh, uh, movement, a huge impetus in our day that says the church needs to get back to the book of Acts. Have you ever heard anything like that? We need to get back to to the first century church. We want to be like the first century church. I would submit to you the reason that we are not like the first century church is because we don't want to endure what they endured. They were persecuted on every page of the book of Acts. They're being thrown in jail, they're being flogged, they're being stoned, they're being beaten. They're even being martyred. They're even being martyred. This is what persecution is. Physical and life-threatening opposition to the gospel. 
It can also be expressed in being ostracized from society, being pushed out to to the fringes of society and culture to be othered so that you even suffer economically, possibly unable to be employed or to get a job in a culture that is persecuting Christians. And notice here Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness sake. For righteousness sake. Not for any other sake. Not for foolishness sake. Now I've, I've undergone the ramifications of uh, being uh, just suffering under the consequences of my own foolishness. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about specifically being persecuted because we are righteous in Christ and we proclaim the gospel. Again, in verse 11, he says, if you are persecuted on my account for the sake of Christ. And so persecution happens. Persecution arises when there are two opposing world views. Two opposing world views. Two value systems that cannot be reconciled. And what we're seeing more and more and more today in our culture is a polarization between two irreconcilable worldviews. We're seeing it happen in our culture today. And I'm not wanting to get into politics and talk left and right politically, but I will just say this, that there is a group of people who believe that it is a good thing to mutilate children. That is an irreconcilable worldview with Christianity. There is no reconciling that with the gospel. There is no middle ground there. Zero, none. It is as black and white as the pages of your Bible. These two worldviews cannot be reconciled. They cannot fellowship with one another. They cannot work together towards some common means. Because at the very core, one says we are created in the image of God. The other says we are just bacteria that hit the lottery. That's a fundamental difference on the very nature of reality itself. And what we're seeing is the, the, the playing out of those worldviews to their logical conclusions. So that if there is no creator, if there is no God, if he has not sent his son into the world to, to die and to reconcile us back to ourselves, because we are created in his image, each bestowed with dignity, value, and, and worth, formed together, knit together by God himself. Just as God hung the stars in the sky, every human being is knit together by the creator. His fingerprint, his stamp on you as an image bearer of God. And from the beginning, Jesus says himself, when he quotes this, when he talks about marriage, he says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. That's one worldview. That's our worldview. But there's another worldview that says we reject all of that. There is no creator. There is no God above us. There is no transcendent truth or reality. There is no objective standard of good and evil, of righteousness. There is no God above us that we will one day be accountable to. That, that we all come from nothing. The, 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 the difference in the worldviews could not be greater. And therefore, since we're just the objects of, of time and space acting on matter, we're, we're just evolved, we, we have no inherent value. 
that your life is not worth more than the virus that we're trying to eradicate right now? That, that all life is equal? Therefore, we can, we can do whatever we want because there is no God. We are God. And so we will play God. You can't reconcile these worldviews. And this is not politics. I'm not talking Democrat, Republican. I'm just saying there are two worldviews. One says there is the God of the Bible who is over all things and he is the standard by which everything exists. And one day we will all stand before him. And one that says fooey on all that. And, and the Bible says what fellowship can light have with darkness? And so the, the persecution is what arises when there are two worldviews that are irreconcilable. In the first century, it was under uh, the first, the first persecution arises uh, under the Jewish people who would not receive Jesus as their Messiah. They dug in their heels. They said, Jesus is not our Messiah and we will persecute those who claim that he is. After the first century, towards the end of the first century, that role of persecution spread to Rome who persecuted Christians who would not declare that Caesar is Lord. We sang that song this morning, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, you can't say that both Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. Irreconcilable. And so persecution arose in the second century on from Rome. And so as we see persecution, or as we see the, the world views uh, continue to diverge and the clarity that comes from that, if those in power uh, dig in and hold to this worldview, it is very possible that in the future Christians could face persecution in our country. It's very possible. But what I want you to understand is that statistically, that would not be an anomaly. That would not be shocking statistically because today, in the 195 nations that are in the world today, 195 nations, in the 145 of them, Christians live under persecution. In 145 of the 195 nations of the world, Christians face persecution. 75%, that means it's nearly 75% of all of the nations at some level, persecute Christians. What this means is that one in seven Christians worldwide are persecuted for their faith. One in seven. One in seven. Think about that. One in seven Christians worldwide persecuted for their faith. In Africa, that number is one in five Christians persecuted for their faith. In Asia, that number is two in five Christians. Two out of every five Christians in Asia are persecuted for their faith. What that me this means is that the majority of Christians today live under the threat of persecution. That means our brothers and sisters in Christ today, if they gather for worship, when they gather for worship and word and sacrament, they do so under the threat of paying a high price to gather together for worship. I want to share with you some of the nations that persecute Christians and the way that they're persecuted here. Just a handful of them. I'm not going to walk through all 145 this morning. Let's just look at some of the most egregious. North Korea is where Christians today face some of the stiffest persecution. Its government actively seeks to eradicate all religious beliefs other than those related 
to the ruling regime. In Afghanistan today, the Taliban government has made it clear that they will not tolerate any non-Islamic religious activity, including Christian worship. In Somalia, Islamic extremist groups have made it their mission to eradicate Christianity in their country, often through violence and intimidation. In the Sudan, Christians face persecution from both the government and radical Islamic groups. In Pakistan, Christians face discrimination and violence from both the government and extremist groups. In India, Hindu nationalist groups have become increasingly aggressive towards Christians, often using violence and intimidation to prevent Christians from gathering for worship. In China, the Chinese government has been cracking down recently on religious practices, including Christianity, and has been dismantling churches and imprisoning pastors. In Nigeria, Christians face persecution from Islamic groups. And in Iran, Christians are considered a threat to the Islamic regime and are often arrested and imprisoned. That's just a handful of the countries, 145 where Christians are persecuted today. And we need to be honest with ourselves this morning and admit that we have no idea what that's like. We have no idea what that's like. We have not most likely endured this kind of persecution. Certainly not here in this country. Maybe if you've grew up in another country or or have traveled and done missionary work, maybe you've experienced that a little bit. But never in this country have we ever experienced persecution like this. But what we need to understand is that we in this country, we are the exception to the rule. The general rule throughout all of Christian history has been that the church has lived under the threat of persecution. The apostles write about this in the New Testament. Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul, in a sermon in the book of Acts, says that we must endure many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said this, remember the word that I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So for the Christian, persecution isn't to be a surprise. The apostles and Jesus taught that we would face persecution for the name of Christ. The reason in this country we have not faced persecution is because we were, as a nation, founded on Christianity and Christian principles and the Word of God. Amen. This is how our nation was founded. And so we have lived under immense freedom, immense religious freedom in this country. Re religious freedom flows out of a Christian worldview. The freedom of conscience flows out of a Christian worldview. And so as Christianity declines in our nation, what we will find is that people are not more free, but less free. But we, we need to recognize, we have lived under the blessing of God. And we have been the exception to the rule. Now notice here that not only is Jesus talking about physical persecution, but he also adds another category. Again, physical persecution 
would be something that I would, would argue that most of us have, have never lived under or experienced or endured. But then Jesus says in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. So he adds another category of persecution that is verbal. He says, "Utter all, blessed are you when people utter, say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So not only at times can we expect physical persecution, but there will also be verbal opposition to the gospel. And this is where physical persecution starts. It first starts by verbal opposition. Before it becomes violent, it's first verbal. And as Christians today living in this country, this is the type of opposition that we are most likely to experience in 2023. This might not be foreign to you at all. In fact, as I thought about it this week and compiled a list of slanders and slurs that are often used against Christians in our culture, I was actually quite surprised at how long this list was. Listen to this and, and see if, if you agree that Christians are often labeled as these things in our country today, reviled as this, bigoted, intolerant, hypocritical, ignorant, anti-intellectual, judgmental, dogmatic, xenophobic, homophobic, anti-LGBT, etc., etc., misogynistic, colonialists, anti-Semitic, anti-Islamic, anti-science, anti-abortion, anti-women, too political, narrow-minded, that Christians have committed historical atrocities like the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition, so that'll be thrown in our faces. Self-righteous, and then when all else fails, people will resort to the standard white supremacist and racist. Are not Christians called these things today? It's a tactic to shut us up. To stop us from our peacemaking. From our gospel preaching. It's a tactic. And too often we have not been willing to endure the blessing of being reviled for the sake of Christ. Jesus here says it is a blessing. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Now, I've known many Christians in my life. Not a one of them perfect. But this list does not describe those people. Not a one of them perfect. We are all fallen. Redeemed by grace. But this is a tactic of the enemy. And we need to recognize it for what it is. The Bible says that we should not be ignorant of his devices. It's a tactic to get us to silence ourselves, to self-silence, to stop from sharing the gospel message, the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus here says that if you endure this, if you are reviled or persecuted, that you are blessed. Not only does he say that you are blessed, but in verse 12 he says that we should rejoice and be glad when this happens. So not, not only have we been not willing to endure it, the blessing of it, but we don't see it as a blessing. And so therefore we would not rejoice if this happened. Notice here Jesus is not 
saying, I think you ought to rejoice if this happens. I think that maybe it would be a good idea to rejoice. Here's a suggestion for you. No, he just issues it as a command. Rejoice and be glad. Who does this guy think that he is? Well, he thinks he's God. And so he thinks he has the right to tell us how to live. And I think he is God. And so I think I ought to obey him. So the issue here is that we should, if we endure these things, and again, we're not living under the threat of physical persecution, but we are being reviled in our culture today. We should rejoice and be glad. This is an imperative. This is an expectation that Jesus has. You might say, that's impossible. How could I rejoice and and not only being reviled, but if I was being physically persecuted? That is impossible. How could I do this? Is it impossible? Well, in the flesh it is. But remember, Jesus isn't describing the fleshly person. Jesus is describing someone who has God alive on the inside of them. Jesus is describing someone who's been born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus is describing someone who has exchanged the values of this world for the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus here is describing the one who has the power of the spirit of God on the inside of them. So can I rejoice in the power of the spirit if I am persecuted and reviled? You bet you can. Because you have Christ on the inside of you who for the joy set before him went to the cross. And his spirit lives in each one of us. So yes, we can do it. Not in our flesh, but in the power of his spirit. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And notice here, Jesus says that our rejoicing should be for a particular reason. Rejoice, be glad, for, because of this. Your reward is great in heaven. So if I suffer here, if I'm reviled here, if I'm persecuted and slandered and called all kinds of names and even martyred here, I am laying up a reward for me in eternity. Amen. And so what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to shift our perspective off of just having a nice, comfortable, good life now. And to put it on living for the kingdom of God. And if we do that, we can expect to be called things. To be labeled things. To have all kinds of things in our culture set against us and in places that live under more totalitarian regimes, even physically persecuted. But ultimately, this world is not our home. We're we're strangers, we're aliens, we're sojourners. We are passing through to the kingdom of heaven, and our reward is great there. Our reward is great there. So Jesus says we should live with this eternal perspective that God will reward those who suffer for his name's sake. In the New Testament, there are at least 25 texts that teach that rewards in heaven will be distributed by Christ, hear me in this, according to our works. Rewards in heaven will be distributed to us according to our works. Now we know, and well we should know, that we are saved apart from our works. Right? We are saved by grace through faith. We are, none of our works contribute anything to our salvation. He saves us by his work and we receive his work as an act of faith and the grace of God. Unmerited favor. And the New Testament immediately goes on to teach Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 that because we are saved by his work, 
We are saved to do good works here for his kingdom. And that he is laying up for us rewards and treasures in heaven according to the works that we have done for him. And this is why we can rejoice. Jesus says, rejoice, be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. This reminds me of the story in Acts chapter 5. We don't have time to go there this morning. But the disciples, this is the first time that they endure physical persecution. Acts chapter 5, they're beaten for preaching the gospel. And when they leave on the way home from being beaten... Acts 5.41 says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. This is the perspective Jesus calls all of us to live with here now. And he goes on to say, your reward is great in heaven And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, if we endure suffering, if we endure endure persecution, if we endure reviling and, and people slandering us for the name of Christ, for righteousness sake, we are in good company. We are in really good company. Amen? I, I, amen. They, they did the same to Jesus. They did the same to the apostles. They did the same to the prophets who came before them. I would like to be in that category. Those are the kind of people I want to be known as. I want to be in that group. I want to be, basically, there's two groups. There's the group that is ostracized, persecuted for the name of Christ. And then there's the group doing that. Which group do you want to be a part of? And then there's those who just turned a blind eye to it, who enable it. I want to be in the group that suffers for the name of Christ. He says, you are in good company. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets in their day bore witness to God of the truth of righteousness, of salvation, grace, and the justice of God. And we bear witness to those things also in our day. Though the Bible has been written, though the canon of Scripture is closed, God is still writing redemption's story today. The, the story of God redeeming the world is still being written today. Though the price has been paid, though redemption has been completed on the cross, the, the overflow, the outworking of that redemption, God is still writing that story through human history today. And we are to be participants with him in that story. And if we must suffer for our participation, so be it. So in conclusion today, persecution happens when there is a collision between opposing worldviews that cannot be reconciled. Right now today, we're seeing like never before the collision between these two views, these two ways of thinking, these two philosophies of life, the division is growing deeper and wider between these two systems that cannot be reconciled. We can see that clearly that we as Christians, faithful Christians, Bible-believing Christians, Christians who hold to the truth of the gospel and the inerrancy of the word of God and the authority of the word of God, we can see that we are already being reviled today. We're being ostracized today. And I don't know what the future holds, but I can tell you for certain that persecution is not off the table. I don't know the direction that our nation and culture will go in. I don't know. Now, personally, I hold to an optimistic view of the church in history. I believe that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. I believe that. I believe that. But 
Christ building his church and the gates of hell not prevailing does not exclude the church being persecuted. Because we see in the book of Acts that Christ built his church and the gates of hell did not prevail, yet they were persecuted. So I don't know what the future holds. I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be one. But I do think it would be extremely naive to think that it could never happen here. When the majority of Christians today live under the real threat of persecution. And maybe not, maybe not in our day. But what about in our children's day? What about in our children's day? What about in our grandchildren's day? Can you envision a day where your grandchildren, our grandchildren, or descendants could be persecuted for their faith in Christ? And the question that we have to really wrestle with, I'm speaking specifically to to parents, grandparents here right now. Are we imparting to our children, grandchildren, a faith that is strong enough, that is robust enough to stand the fires of persecution, to stand in that day? Or are we simply content to pass on to them a casual cultural Christianity? Knowing a few Bible stories, but having a worldview that has been shaped by the culture. This is something that we really have to come to terms with because if we believe that our children and grandchildren may one day face persecution, then it is our job today to prepare them to face it. To equip them with a faith strong enough to face it. But if their worldview is essentially the one that the world shares with just a little bit of Christianity sprinkled on top, It's not going to cut it. They they won't be like those three Hebrew children that stood that day at Nebuchadnezzar's command to bow. But they will be like everybody else that bowed that day. What are we doing to prepare ourselves and our children to one day face persecution? It's very likely, statistically, that those of us who have children and grandchildren one day will most likely have great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, statistically speaking, very possible. And our only connection to them is our children today. And so if I one day am going to have great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren is the faith that I'm handing down to my kids strong enough, robust enough, that they can then hand it on to their kids and their kids so that one day my great-great-great-grandchildren would love and serve Jesus no matter what's going on in the culture around them. That's the mentality we need to be living with. And so if we do that, guess what? People are going to think that we're weird. Because we're not going to live life like everybody else. We're not going to let Netflix and YouTube and the Teletubbies raise our kids. We're not going to do it. We're not just going to hand our kids cell phones and say, can you just shut up? Can I just have a moment of peace and quiet? And let God knows what indoctrinate them. Because we realize that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're loud and noisy and a lot of work. But that doesn't mean they're not a blessing. And so we will make sacrifices and do things that people think are weird. Because look, one day I want to have kids that will stand. I want to have grandkids that will stand. I want to have a faith that if one day persecution comes, I will stand. 
And that's something that we all have to, we all have to realize is a very real reality. Amen. I invite you to stand with me this morning. I invite the worship team to come. In 2 Kings, there's a story of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a wonderful king. He led the nation in revival. He led the nation back to God. But at the end of his life, he he did something foolish. The Lord came to him through the prophet Isaiah and said, because of what you've done, the sin that you have committed, that one day the, the nation of Babylon is going to come and carry off some of your own children and grandchildren. And instead of King Hezekiah, who who was a godly man, instead of him repenting, being brokenhearted over this news, King Hezekiah said this, the word of the Lord that you have said is good, for he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days. Though King Hezekiah was a godly man, in this moment he thought a very ungodly thought, which was, I don't really care what happens to my kids and grandkids. I don't really care what happens in their days as long as I get to live in peace and comfort and security in my day. And it's a heartbreaking reality that that even godly people, wonderful people, Christian people, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing people can have such a short-sighted, narrow view to not care about the next generation and the next generation. And what will the world look like in their day? And we need to understand, we need to realize that what Jesus teaches is that there is a blessing for those who endure faithfully whatever the world throws against them. And we want to be a part of the people who will receive that blessing and raise a generation who will be able to live and experience that blessing as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, these aren't easy words, but they are true words. And Lord, we pray that you would transform the way that we think. Give us the right perspective. Help us to have the right values so that we would live faithfully for you and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.